Hi, I'm Natalie, and welcome to Infinitely Irrational, where we discuss the real, eccentric, and complex history of math. In each episode, I unearth the wild stories behind some famous or not-so-famous mathematicians. We'll continue talking about the man, the myth, the legend, Charles Dodgson, and this episode will attempt to answer the following questions. How do you get your room requests noticed by the higher-ups? What's the best way to get the menu changed at your favorite eatery? What do either of these have to do with math? Let's find out. So today we continue our conversation around Charles Dodgson, a.k.a. Lewis Carroll, or you could go the other way if you want. And we've got Joanna back with us to continue talking math, language, logic, illogic, dot, dot, dot. Welcome back. Thank you, Natalie. The best mixture of different things that people don't enjoy mixing, but I think actually they're very much worth mixing. Oh, they are hundred percent. Look, look at all the great conversations you and I have had. And I have one of my friends who is an English professor. She and I constantly talk about the fact that English and math are so entwined. When you think about a math problem and people say, show your work, it's like writing a persuasive essay, except it's all backed up with facts. Like I would tell my students that when I was teaching, I would constantly say, you know, if I came in here and I said, again, Harry Potter reference, Slytherin is the best house. Um, you know, you wouldn't believe me. I don't know why it's true, but I would probably have to make a persuasive arguments. And it's kind of the same thing. If you're going to tell me the answer is this, let's discuss how you got from A to B. As far as Dodgson and his writing, he wrote and was written over 98,000 letters. He left behind 13 volumes of diaries. We only have nine that remains, four were either missing or destroyed, as well as a 24-volume letter register, which is indexed, and just a ton of other personal documents. I think that's really impressive, especially taking into consideration how difficult it was to deliver those letters. That's something we forget sometimes, because I think any one of us in our lifetime will write more than 98,000 emails. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or text messages. Or text messages. But the speed at which these are delivered is like in practically real time. I was still curious who has been the most prolific author of all time. And according to Guinness World of Records, the most published works by one author is 1084 by L. Ron Hubbard from the USA and whose first world work was published in February 1934, and the last in March 2006. So that's an amazing amount of time to be active in writing and publishing. But this was about published works, not personal writings like the 98,000 letters of Lewis Carroll. Which sidebar, some of those letters had to be the letters to his sister. Good job, me. Self-high five. <laughs> so but still, right? Like we do that too. We're like thumbs up us, you know? Yeah. Maybe we do that as well. Oh yeah. The reactions. Yeah. Do those count? His brother was actually appalled at the mass of paper in his brother's rooms. Within four months, he burned some of the items and sold much of the rest of it. And we lost a lot more. I think there's some sort of rumor that his niece and other family members, for some reason, mutilated his diary. We talk about the value of research and the conflicting views that people had. So it's interesting here. 
when we were doing the research for Hypatia, there was a group that seemed to say that there was a gentleman who was able to say whatever he wanted without backing it up. And so I think it's really interesting, the importance, again, of citing your sources. And now this is an interesting conversation here now in 2023 with generative AI. I was reading the other day that a researcher had sent a list of articles and stuff to a reference librarian and said, can you look these up for me and pull them? And the reference librarian went and searched and couldn't find them and was like, what is this? Like, where can I find this? And the person had gone to like essentially chat GPT and said, can you give me a list of sources for my bibliography for this thing that I want to do a lit review on? And this was a master's level type of a thing, but chat GPT made it up and it doesn't exist. So as we think about the future of research, I know like your face. So listeners, you can't see Joanna's face. I can. Her face was like exactly mine. Her mouth is open. But it's crazy because research is important. And we've seen back from Pythagoras, sources are conflicted, right? And then we had some better research with Erdish and all of that. But are we truly taking a step back if we start to solely rely upon things like generative AI and things like that? Yeah, I hadn't heard the story before. I've seen things about numbers or properties of numbers and so on that are just outright wrong. I've seen articles or blogs about that, but I hadn't read that it just randomly produces some fictional reference list. I mean, that's huge. And it looked legit. That's the thing. It pulled the name of an actual journal, but maybe like the author and the article were wrong, like didn't exist or something like that. So it just literally randomly picked and put together something to look good. But yeah, I'll go try and find it. I'll send it to you. This is fascinating to read. Definitely. So now that we've talked about generative AI, now <laughs> back in like, I wonder, you know, thinking about... Fermat and his work with the unfinished game and all of those things that ultimately I believe did come up to generate predictive AI. Like, could he ever have imagined a world where this would be a thing? But anyway, Dodgson never married, but he had plenty of friendships with adult women. But the biographers and even his family tend to ignore this in favor of the eccentric version of Lewis Carroll, the Willy Wonka-esque, right? Yeah, I don't know if this has been in his best interest long term, because he was an adult man enjoying the company of adult women. It's just something that removes any other suspicions as to why was he photographing children, which was just something people used to do and some things changed and some things were acceptable then and not today and so on. Right. But I don't see why you would remove something like that from somebody's life story. Yeah. It adds to the whole picture anyway. Exactly. And especially because to your point, you know, like he did enjoy sharing stories and puzzles and everything with children. So if you're trying to make a case for what the accurate picture is that you're probably right, that's not in his best interest to leave it out. Because, you know, the best of his letters that he wrote were to children. They had poems, puzzles, word games, but there's no evidence there was anything untoward going on with the kids. It's not like a big sort of Michael Jackson type of a scandal. He addressed one letter, this is fun, to a 14-year-old boy who had written to him, understanding you to be a distinguished algebraist, 
and distinguished that is able to be distinguished from other algebraists by different face or a different height, right? So not distinguished, like I'll button up my coat, look how important I am, which is hilarious. So then he proceeds to give him a math problem with a fallacy in it, complaining that he just can't figure it out. The steps are given and he works out essentially to two times two equals five, which I love because I've done that with my students in class where I show them, you know, that one equals two. And it's because of like what the division by zero, which is impossible. So, you know, you can always Google that or I'll post it on the web. But I love those sorts of things. Yeah. And I think if he was someone who was investing his time to create these things, we need to take that into account with all the stories. Like he actually put a lot of effort in creating all these resources and all these puzzles and all these stories to guide children into fun learning and entertaining them. Yeah. And okay, so this is me in real life, honestly, these next couple of letters that he wrote. It's a pretty funny request, honestly, to administration for a mathematical institute. And at this mathematical institute, he's going to ask for the following rooms. A very large room for calculating the greatest common measure. And of course, a small one for the least common multiple. (laughs) That's one of the rooms he wants. He wants a piece of open ground for keeping roots and practicing their extraction. (laughs) So we're going to do square roots on the ground. I love it. It's amazing. Another room for reducing fractions to their lowest terms. This one should have a cellar for keeping the lowest terms, which might also be available for the purpose of keeping terms. (laughs) That's hilarious. And then there are a couple other ones. A large room which might be darkened and fitted up with a magic lantern for the purpose of exhibiting circulating decimals in the act of circulation. A narrow strip of ground railed off and carefully leveled for testing practically whether parallel lines meet or not. And for this purpose, it should reach, to use the expressive language of Euclid, ever so far. Amazing. And then... Finally, continually producing the lines may require centuries or more, but such a period, though long in the life of an individual, is as nothing in the life of a university. (laughs) May I trust that you will give your immediate attention to this most important subject. Believe me, sincerely yours, Mathematicus. (laughs) I love that ending as well. Believe me. (laughs) Believe me. Look at my persuasive work. And again, we look at the way that he's put the words that mean something in math and worded it for English as well. It's just, it's awesome. I came across a funny cartoon picture, that was a long time ago, that said that was a math shop and it was spelled S-H-O-P-P-E. I don't know if that's an older version of the word. And it says, extraction of square roots on the premises. New digits of pi calculated daily, things like that. Uh, but you might have some inspiration from this. That's hilarious. I saw a similar one that was like math clickbait. And it's like, which geometer did X, Y, and Z thing? Like, it was so funny. So yeah, surely someone had to have used this as, <laughs> as inspiration. But he also didn't write letters just about construction. So a second letter is a strongly worded complaint about food at the college. So apparently he's also a foodie. He says, dear Stuart, Stuart, not Stuart, 
John Henry Onions, I'm not sure who that is, but given that the last name is Onions, I feel it's potentially not real. (laughs) So John Henry Onions and I are agreed that it is about time to make a formal representation to you as the very inferior cookery now prevalent. During the last 10 days or so, he said lots of things, but this one is my favorite. Yesterday I ordered, for the last time, I shall not again, baked apple dumplings. Their idea of that dish seems to be this. Take some apples, wrap each in the thinnest possible piece of pastry, bake till nearly black, so as to produce the consistency of, say, pasteboard. (laughs) (laughs) But you see, what I really love about this, it's a brilliant review. It has very specific complaints to make. Many of the negative reviews that we read these days, you say we are checking if it's worth to go to a restaurant, especially when you're abroad and you're not sure. And, oh, this was really bad. This was really, and there's no gist in those reviews, usually But this one is like very specific. It even describes a supposed way of what went wrong with the production of that dish and so on. I looked at some reviews like the funniest ones, but I don't know if I'm fully convinced with those. They sound a bit not true. So I had a lady send back the buffalo wings she ordered because she got chicken wings, not buffalo wings. I mean, can this be true? I don't know. I laughed when I read it, but then I was thinking, can it really be true? I don't know. But he had more like really cool reviews, didn't he? Very specific again. Yeah. It's interesting too, because I love that he's like on par with the Like if you've seen Ratatouille, the food critic, where he goes in and he's so very specific about it. So he's like leveled them up. He's like, let me tell you how you can fix this. Here's another one that he says. Cauliflowers. So I need to preface this by saying me, Natalie, I do not like cauliflower. I've tried a lot of different types of ways of eating it based on preparation, and I do not like it at all. So I preface it by saying that. So he says, cauliflowers are always sent with no part soft enough to eat except the tops of the flowers. This the cook defends and seems to think no one ever expects to eat more. He explains that if boiled till the stalks are eatable, the flour would be overboiled. All I know is that everywhere except here, cauliflower is a very nice vegetable and eaten as a whole. Here, only 5% is eatable and that absolutely flavorless. I don't think I'm remarkably fastidious as to cookery, but I may say that I should think very poorly of a London restaurant with dinners, say, at two shillings a head that supplied such cookery. Hoping all this won't bother you very much. I am very truly yours, C.L. Dodgson. And he fully signs their reviews. (laughs) He's not like hiding behind yet another pseudonym or something. He's like, this is what bothers me. And he had a conversation with the chef clearly before he submitted that with the cook. I don't know if it would be any interesting to say a bit about the shilling and how much that was. So it was a former monetary unit in the United Kingdom and it was equal to 12 pence or one twentieth of a pound. Today, a pound has 100 pence. Of course, it's interesting to ask why the word pound has value in terms of money as well as weight. As a currency, pound sterling was originally defined such that one pound was the equivalent of one pound weight of silver. So that's why we have the same word for money and for weight. 
in Belize, we use the word shilling, but it's used to describe a quarter, like 25 cents. So quarter of a dollar, which I think is interesting because it's like, I guess it's some kind of translation of the, what do you say, 12 pence or 1 20th of a pound or so I guess that's close. No, no, it would be one quarter. I don't know. It's really interesting. Now I want to go Google that. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting that you still use the word shilling in Belize. I grew up in Cyprus, which was a former British colony as well. And we had the word Cellini, which is like just a different pronunciation of the same word that was to represent different values of coins as well. And I was born after the country became independent. So it didn't coincide with them being there. So it's interesting. Mm -hmm. So for all the letters he wrote, I think probably our favorite letter was with the Little family. He was friends with the head of Christchurch College, a dean and his family, including dun, 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 Alice Little. And it's likely he found solace living with them instead of eating, living, teaching in the same location. I always wondered to myself, you think about the Hogwarts professors like McGonagall and all of them that sleep at Hogwarts and they eat at Hogwarts. And I would want to leave Hogwarts if that was my life, right? So I'm sure he probably found some solace in hanging out with them. And before leaving, Miss Little actually says that he shouldn't spend his time teaching Harry one of their children math, but he does so. And then Miss Little's mother is alarmed at one point that Harry is learning math because she's afraid, and this is my favorite, that it'll overwork his brain. Well, she had maybe appropriate expectations, who knows? (laughs) He was not a huge fan of boy children in general, though, but probably due to his bad time in school, because he did have a stutter and, you know, stammer, and he was very shy. And you know how boys are sometimes when they're young. So he closed a letter to one of Harry's sisters by saying, give your small, fat, impertinent, ignorant brother my hatred. I think that is all. (laughs) That was a bit, like, too open. (laughs) I want to sign a letter off like that. Like, who would I ever do that? I would get in so much trouble if I did that. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. But he also wrote stuff about how to teach math to kids. We talked about these puzzles and brain teasers. He actually used them as teaching aids and he published some of them. And the names are fun. One of the names was called Pillow Problems. And he got this name because he thought it up in bed and he never wrote anything down until he woke up the next morning. So in one of his books, a character talks about the puzzle of the paper ring, which is a Mobius strip that only had one surface and one edge. So I can post a link to a Mobius strip on the website. But in particular, he would write postscripts for mathematicians only. For example, he explained an election rotation for proctorships at the college. It's quite impressive that he could remember them in the morning. I've read about people who have like a notebook on their bedside table and jot things down as they come just to not forget them. It's really impressive that he could remember that the next day. Yeah, no joke. I mean, my trick to remembering stuff, if I go to bed or I wake up and I'm like, I have to remember this. I try to make an acronym of everything so that I have like the first letters. But then the next morning, sometimes I'm still like, what did B stand for? Like, (laughs) so it doesn't work 100% of the time, but often enough that I feel good about it. But also in Alice, Dodgson thought that kids could understand logic. And in fact, they take interest in it and are good with it. 
we see this. You just talked about one of the Tweedle's poems, but Tweedledee and Tweedledum, they like to play with symbolic logic. And so he created a game kind of to help with syllogisms. So syllogisms, do you have a good example of one? Or, you know, I've got one teed up if you don't. Yeah, please go with yours. Sure. So here's a syllogism. All dogs go to heaven. I have a dog. My dog will go to heaven. So it's an inference, essentially. But there can also be syllogistic fallacies. For example, I have a friend who teaches philosophy and he was on vacation with his girls. Oh, my friend Anthony that did the Euclid. So he was on vacation with his girls and he saw this shirt that said, unicorns are awesome. I am awesome. Therefore, I am a unicorn. (laughs) And you always spot the things that you know will bug you, is it? Right, right. His youngest daughter wanted that shirt. I don't know if they bought it or not, but that's hilarious. So listeners, you know, if you have ideas for syllogistic fallacies or syllogisms that are fun, send us the best one. We see this in Alice too, the frog footman where there's a logical conundrum that's posed for Alice. So Alice goes to the Duchess's house and the footman must let her in. Well, the footman's sitting outside. So she knocks on the door and he's like, well, I can't let you in because I'm outside. So basically they have this whole thing where she's like, this is silly. And she finally just opens the door and goes in. And I absolutely love that. (laughs) Yeah. And I think the books are of cases like this and I don't know. I think if I were to get a highlighter, it would have been like half the book would be yellow. But yeah, it's interesting to think how these ideas are incorporated in the story. Yeah. And obviously what Charles Dodgson or Lewis Carroll, since we've got, you know, sort of the two different folks, what he's known most for is Alice. And we know that he used his daily life for inspiration and stories. Alice is supposedly based on Alice Littles, the dean's daughter. The dodo is supposedly Dodgson. The eaglet who gets caught in the pool of tears is supposedly Alice's sister, Edith. She demands that the dodo speak English and adds, I don't know the meaning of half of those long words. And what's more, I don't believe you do either. And then apparently the Dormouse is suspected to be styled after a friend's pet wombat that had a habit of sleeping on the table. There's so much in the Alice books that's also aimed at adults as well. For example, Alice talked to the caterpillar about changing size so often, and he says, you'll get used to it in time. And it seems that the caterpillar actually teaches Alice how to cope with the difficulties she encounters in Wonderland. And he teaches her how to change size by eating the mushroom and to adapt to the environment when needed. There is also why was the caterpillar kind of smoking and encouraging mushroom eating and all of that. But we see that Alice is very consistent with her responses and like takes things quite literally and asks very, very strong questions. And that helps her move through her adventure and to the eventual getting out of Wonderland and so on. And of course, Alice's journey in Through the Looking Glass follows the moves of a chess game, which is also very, you have to have high focus and be very in control of your moves and what you choose to do. Yeah, I think you're 100% right. I think if Lewis Carroll was on drugs, there's no way that it would have such logic in the illogical nonsense. Even too, you know, one thing that I I was thinking about as you were saying that, and I don't know what made me think of it, but when she's in sort of the pool of tears and they're doing the election or whatever it is, and the mouse starts 
quoting a bunch of stuff and it's super dry and it's super boring. It's actually a book of English history that a governess used to teach the little children. So it's, it's super funny and interesting, but you're exactly right. I mean, every choice that he made was so deliberate and it was awesome. Yes, there's so much research on his books and how he wrote them. And, and some of the information that I mentioned is from aliceinwonderland.net. And there's organizations and researchers and so on looking into those two books and, and analyzing them further and coming to conclusions as to the inspirations and so on. And it's really interesting that his work has caused so many discussions and so much interest around the source of these and the meaning of these things and the purpose of It's just a cool conversation. Next time, we're going to get into the episode that I've been waiting for. I'm sure everybody else is, let's talk about all the Alices. So we're going to talk about Alice in Wonderland and the math hidden inside. So tell us, Joanna, where we can find you, what's going on. And I'll, of course, post in show notes as well. Perfect. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me again. So uh, I think the best place would be my website, ioannagiorgiu.com. I have information about my two books, Mathematical Adventures and Kekile Desopheus Mathematicians, both published by math specialist publisher Tarquin and illustrated by Asker Young. And I have some news about upcoming events, some blog entries. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Infinitely Irrational. Can't get enough of the math and the fun? Visit us on the web at infinitelyirrational.com for the math and research behind the stories. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or email at podcast at infinitelyirrational.com. If you love this episode, subscribe, follow, and share. See you soon for the next one. 